The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. If you all want to carry on meeting and greeting, that's wonderful. It is the season for that, but it's also the season for um, great Christmas stories, and one of the best ever written, in my opinion, would be uh, one of the most famous ever told, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. How many of you have ever heard or seen or read that story? Keep your hands up if you agree the Muppet version is the best. This is a great church. (laughs) But in that story, what we find is it's the story of a a man named Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a miserly moneylender. He hates Christmas, pretty much hates people. And what we see in that story is his life is transformed in a single night, a single night. If if you know the story, you know how it begins. Ebenezer Scrooge is is sitting in his bone-chillingly cold office on Christmas Eve, and it describes him this way in the book. It says he is a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. How many of you know someone like that? Don't point at them. Scrooge here in the story, he despises the the Christmas joy of his nephew, Fred. He he mistreats and underpays his employees like Bob Cratchit. He embarrasses two men who are seeking donations for the poor. And then he insults a child who's singing a Christmas carol at his keyhole. So Scrooge would have come uh, to something like this this morning and seen the display that our children will, will put on in the second service. And what would his response have been to that? What would he say? That's right. Bah, humbug. Scrooge is bitter, he is greedy, he is closed off. And yet, I think what's so compelling about Scrooge is is that when we we look internally and we look at some of the the tendencies that we have, our own desires, our own uh, internal darkness, if there is some there, we see a bit of ourselves in Scrooge. He's closed off. Not only is he he closed off, but what we see in the story is that he's actually blind to what he's actually like and, and what kind of life he is building for himself. And on this particular Christmas Eve, he's going to find out as four spirits come to him in the night and they hold up a mirror to his life. He's going to see the terrifying truth about himself. And at the end of the night, if you know the end of the story, I'm going to spoil it for you. He turns to heaven in desperation and he receives a new beginning, a new life to to make things right and to live differently. But during that night, he's going to meet the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and uh, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. But before all that, while he's sitting in his nightgown by himself on Christmas Eve in the darkness, trying to to basically waste away the evening, he meets the last person he expects, Jacob Marley. Jacob Marley is his old business partner who has died seven years earlier on that very night. And as Scrooge sees this terrifying figure who has come out of the shadows, he can't ignore the heavy chains that wrap around his old business partner, Marley. I want to read the description from the story. It says, the chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. Marley is eternally bound and burdened by the things that he worshiped in life. He's constructed his own prison of greed and selfishness and willingly locked himself in. He says it this way. He says, I wear the chain I forged in life. He says, I made it. Link by link and yard by yard, I girded it on of my own free will. And of my own free will, I wore it. And then Marley shocks Scrooge. He tells him that over the last seven years since he's, he's died, 
that Scrooge has been forging an even longer chain for himself, a terrifyingly long chain that he will carry through eternity if he doesn't change. Romans 6, it tells us essentially the same thing. It says that apart from Christ, living in our own strength, in our own flesh, we were in bondage to sin, in chains under the law, captivated by the chains of our nature and our choices. Link by link, we each forge chains for ourselves, chains of sin, a custom-made, handcrafted, personal prison. And so I want to ask you this morning, what kind of chains are you dragging around when you have moments of honest introspection, what are the, the things in your life that, that you're continually doing or that have beset you that you know are just killing you? What are those chains? Maybe like Scrooge, you're a, a slave to affluence, unable to live generously, unable to let go of the things that God has given you, unable to be content because you've come to find your source of power and your security is in what you own, but it's never enough. Maybe you have chains of addiction, those choices turned habits, turned coping mechanisms, those things that we continually feed, knowing that they lead to nothing but more bondage. Maybe your chains are attitudes that you can't seem to shake, dishonesty or sarcasm and criticism, fear, guilt, shame, bitterness, resentment, rage, envy, lust, pride, self-pity, people-pleasing. And this morning, you can feel the weight of those chains. Yet what Christmas is all about, what we're celebrating in this season is, is that we are celebrating God's grand plan to break chains, to set free captives, to bring salvation to the lost. It says this in Galatians chapter four, it says, but when the fullness of, of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I love the Christmas song, Oh Holy Night. Does anyone else like that one? Yeah, well, if, if you come on Christmas Eve, there's a rumor circulating that old PBJ, Pastor Bill Jeske, is going to be singing O Holy Night. So come on out and enjoy that. <clears throat> but I love this, this verse here. It says, truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break. For the slave is our brother and in his name, all oppression shall cease. And from the earliest days of Jesus's ministry, this is what he declared. This is what he, he came to do. We are celebrating his birth this week and, and, and that's wonderful. But at the birth of his ministry in his first recorded sermon, the first one that we have written down for us, I want you to listen to what Jesus says about himself as he quotes the prophet Isaiah. In Luke chapter four, he's, he's in his hometown, he's in Nazareth and he's teaching in the synagogue that morning. And, and he begins by reading this passage and it's about him. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. See, this is why Jesus came. What is Christmas all about? It's about God's plan to bring salvation and redemption to humanity when we were in darkness and in chains. Christ came to set us free. And yet some of you who are already in Christ, you're still carrying the weight of your sin and the invitation this morning anew to you is to leave that at the cross, to leave it at Christ's feet. See, at the birth of his ministry, Jesus declared this, this breaking of chains, and it's something that he offers to us. Some of you are feeling the weight of chains today, the chains of sin, but for you who are in Christ, if you are still carrying those chains around, you need to know they no longer hold you bound. You've been set free. 
You've been set free. And for those who have not yet known Christ, not yet given your life to Jesus, his appeal to you this morning is to believe in him and to receive redemption, to receive the breaking of your chains, to receive freedom in him. And Paul tells the Galatians this. He says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. There is freedom in Christ, a freedom, salvation from our chains. And this morning, we're going to look at a, a chapter in scripture that's not really a Christmas passage, but I want to see in this passage the way that Jesus sets us free, this, this act of salvation that we can receive. He's going to come across someone who's a lot like Scrooge. Jesus is going to come to someone who's like Scrooge in spiritual chains. And we'll see how Jesus has the power to set us free as we walk through this passage. And, and so what I wanna do this morning is just ask and, and answer three simple questions. First, who can receive salvation? Who can receive salvation? Secondly, how does one receive salvation? And thirdly, what is the response to salvation? So first question, who can receive salvation? I think a lot of us would say anyone, anyone, right? move on. Point number two. No, not so fast. Actually, what we see in the gospels, we went through the gospel of Mark for like a year and a half. And in it, Jesus is preaching. He's in the flesh before them. And many receive salvation and yet many more do not and do not believe. There's something though that distinguishes those that do, that receive it from those that do not. And, and who it is that receives the salvation, it might actually surprise us. It's not the put together. It's not the popular. It's not the proud. It's, it's not the self-righteous or the religious or the reputable. No, it is rather, more often than not, those that are drawn to Christ are those that are outcast and outlaw. The pimps and the prostitutes, the, the sinners and the tax collectors. But what is the critical difference between these two groups? What's the difference between those that are repulsed by Jesus and, and on the other hand, those that receive Jesus gladly? I want you to see this as we go through this passage. Let's look at Luke chapter 19, verse one. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. So Jesus is going into the last two weeks of his ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross and to die. And he's walking through this, this town of Jericho on the way to Jerusalem and word has gotten out that Jesus is coming through. See, his fame has spread. He's, he's a celebrity on a massive scale. People are curious about him. Some are welcoming him as a, as a liberator, as someone who's going to give them political freedom. But everyone is curious about this Jesus. And so the crowd begins to gather as Jesus and his disciples, his closest followers walk through. And it's like Jesus is a one-man parade, the crowd full of people. But in that crowd, there is a one wee little man whose world is about to be turned upside down. It says, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, this passage in Luke 19 is the only time we meet Zacchaeus in scripture. And so, so if you want to know anything about him, what we have is just this right here. Number one, his name is Zacchaeus, which means righteous. It means pure. And in that, you, you get the sense if, if you have children, you name them things that you hope for them, right? You, you give them aspirational names. And here they're saying they, they name this child and they want him to be righteous and pure. And yet his life in it, you see a glimpse of the tragedy of how much his life has gone off a track. Secondly, we see he's a tax collector. Actually, it says he's an arch tax collector. He's chief among the tax collectors. Now, in terms of the reputation of tax collectors, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. If you say you work at the IRS at the Christmas party, it doesn't make you super popular, does it? And in, in Jesus' day, it was far worse. 
because of the corrupt systems that, that existed at the time. We've noted uh, that tax collectors, they were working for the occupying Roman government. They were Jewish people who had been employed by this oppressive Roman regime. And so they're traitors to the Jewish people. Master extortionists, they are the most hated people in all of Palestine. And not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector, he is described as this arch tax collector. So if there's a pyramid of abusive extortionists in Jericho, he is at the top. And yet the reputation because of this, in, a, in this society, Zacchaeus, both literally and figuratively, was easy to look down on. He's, he's also, number three, very rich. Very rich. Jericho, it's, it's known as this perfumed city. It smelled good when you walked through it. And it was a wealthy tropical town along a very important trade route. And as a result, this was an ideal place for a tax man. There were plenty of people with deep pockets walking through and he made the most of that. He made himself rich at the expense of others because he was good at what he does. He's successful and rich, but hated by everyone except Jesus. Now, this is not the first person, the rich person that meets Jesus in the gospels. Remember, uh, or just like a chapter before that, there's this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, but he's unwilling to walk away from his power and possessions. And he makes this devastating choice of walking away from Jesus. And Jesus seeing this, it says he became sad. And he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That's good news. That's great news. And here Jesus is about to do the impossible because he's going to, to meet a man who is very rich and very lost. But what makes Zacchaeus so ready to receive Jesus is that he is deeply aware of his need. You see in, in, in him this desperation to draw near to Jesus knowing how messed up his life has been the choices he's made, the oppression that he's caused to others. I, I, I have to assume that Zacchaeus has come to the place where he can no longer make himself righteous and no longer believes that he can. And yet he sees Jesus and he's drawn to him because he's heard that Jesus is the friend of sinners and tax collectors. He's heard that Jesus has pronounced forgiveness of sins on the most unlikely of people. And so he simply has to see Jesus. Who can receive salvation? It's, it's not the religious, not the self-righteous, not the moral majority. It is anyone who is aware of their need of him. Anyone who understands their need for Jesus. Do you know you need him? Do you know you need him? If you do, you are a prime candidate to receive salvation simply acknowledging that need, acknowledging that you can't do it on your own, that you need grace. That's the first step toward salvation. How does one receive salvation? Ezekiel is about to, that's what the passage will tell us. But to do this, he does three things, three things that picture the very same things that you can do to experience salvation today. Number one, he goes out on a limb. Number two, he looks beyond the crowd. And number three, he takes Jesus home. So again, picture the scene. This parade's coming into town. Jesus is walking through. The crowds are swelling. And Zacchaeus, perhaps having heard the rumors about Jesus, this friend of sinners and tax collectors, he has to see Jesus. He has to, to go out there, even though the crowds hate him. And he decides that he can't miss this. The only problem is what? He's a wee little man, right? He's a wee little man unable to see over the crowd. And it says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So I wanna to explain to you how this normally works. A few years ago, I got the privilege of going to the Manassas uh, Christmas Parade. 
which is way more legit than it sounds. It's actually a three-hour parade with over 100 different things coming through. There's floats, there's acrobats, there's, there's music, all kinds of stuff. And the way this normally works when you go to a parade is that those that are tall, some of you are really tall, you stand toward the back because for you, it's no problem to see over everyone else, right? Right? And then you act really noble about it like you did something really kind, even though you can see just fine. But then you stand at the back and then the, the little people and the children go to the front so that they can see. And so there I was at the front of the crowd as this <laughs> parade is going by. And um, this is kind of the picture you have, have with Zacchaeus. He's back behind this crowd. He can't get through. He can't see, but he has to see Jesus coming through. And so he does something that's actually pretty embarrassing. He runs ahead, which I've said this before, but if, if there's not like a soccer ball involved, grown men shouldn't run in public, right? And so there he is running behind the crowd, looking, trying to, to, to get a view of Jesus. And he, he goes to this tree where he thinks Jesus is going to go next so that he can catch a view. And, and so listen, no courtesy is extended to Zacchaeus as he's trying to push his way up to where the, the children are watching. This despised man has no place in this crowd. No one will let him through. So as a mostly grown man, he, he climbs a tree so that he can get a glimpse of Jesus. Now, I don't know the last time you climbed a tree, but this is not something that, that grown-ups typically do. And in this society in particular, this guy is like one of the leading political figures. He's a, a big deal, at least from a power standpoint. And he does this embarrassing act of climbing up into a tree to catch a view. The first thing he does is he goes out on a limb. He goes out on a limb. And so I want to ask you this morning, if we can take this as an analogy for our lives, what would keep you from becoming a follower of Jesus? Maybe it's, a, it's intellectual uncertainty. I think I just got to figure out, does Christianity actually hold the answers to the questions that I've been asking? Does it actually have the questions, the answers to, to, to those things that I wonder about? Maybe you're unsure if you were to become a Christian, how your friends would respond, how your family would respond or your colleagues. Or maybe you think that you need to get your life together in order to become a Christian. First, you got to figure some things out. You got you to change some things. Or perhaps there are some things in your life that, that you simply are not ready to let go of. You think that Christianity will cost you becoming a follower of Jesus. But to come to Jesus, to receive his salvation, it's a leap of faith. It's a step out onto a limb to, to declare that you are all in. You want Jesus and what he offers, even if you don't know how it's going to turn out, even if it costs you something. Coming to Jesus does cause waves in your relationships. Your relationships will not stay the same if you become a serious follower of the Lord. It may be like the prodigal son. If you're coming from a wild lifestyle, uh, you will have friends and, and people in your life who will start to say, what, do you think you're better than us now? They'll begin to feel uncomfortable, like you're constantly judging them just because you don't participate in the same things anymore. It'll cause waves in those relationships. Or maybe your intellectual friends and colleagues will begin to wonder about you. I knew it. I knew you were weak. I knew you needed this crutch of religion to get through life. By the way, <laughs> I need that crutch of relationship with the Lord every day, every moment of every day. But there is no doubt that, that when we express belief in Jesus, as you step into faith, especially as an adult, it will make changes and cause waves in your relationship. It requires you to step out onto what feels like a very uncertain limb to follow him. But I want to tell you that, that the reward of a life in Christ far outweighs the risk. And in fact, there is a, a far greater risk by rejecting him. 
Zacchaeus is willing to go out on a limb. He doesn't care what people might think. And then the second thing he does is he, he looks beyond the crowd. Here in this passage, Zacchaeus, he is literally over the crowd and he is looking past the crowd with his eyes fixed on Jesus as Jesus approaches. And I wonder this morning if maybe some of you have never considered following Jesus because you just can't get past the crowd. All these people that, that claim to be Christians, followers of Christ, but they're just not great. You're intrigued by Christ perhaps, but you're turned off by Christians because you've seen Christians as, as fake or hypocritical or judgmental or, or maybe you've been burned in the past by, by bad church experiences. And listen, I'll be the first to tell you, Christians are a mess. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we're desperate for grace. That's why we, we draw near to the cross because we see our need for our sins to be forgiven. But for you who are, are turned off to Christianity because of Christians, would you look past the crowd? like Zacchaeus, would you look past the crowd and consider Christ? Consider Jesus alone. See, you can meet him on the pages of scripture. If you open up the gospels and read in Matthew or read in, in the gospel of John, you can meet Jesus face to face. Apart from uh, this crowd of, of people, would you consider Christ and see if despite the crowds, he is who he says he is? Is he the savior? Zacchaeus, he goes out on a limb and he gets over this crowd of, of self-righteous onlookers and, and he locks eyes on Jesus and he's determined to see who Jesus is as he passes by. If you're not a Christian, check out Jesus. Draw near to him. See what he's like. And, and here, he's determined to see who Jesus is as he passes, but Jesus doesn't pass by. Suddenly, the pr procession veers to the side and as Jesus works his way through the cr crowd, he stops at the base of a sycamore tree and he looks up and he sees Danny DeVito up there in a tree. And it says, when he came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. Then listen to what the crowds, how they respond. It says, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I want you to see this though. The last thing that Zacchaeus does in this process, he, he get, goes out on a limb, he looks beyond the crowd. And thirdly, he ignores this humbling crowd, this grumbling crowd, and he brings Jesus home. He brings Jesus home. Friends, Jesus doesn't desire to just be that character that you think about every Christmas. No, he wants to come home with you. He wants to touch every part of your life. He wants to make you new to remove those chains that you've been carrying, to abide with you and remain with you forever. How does one receive salvation? Take a step out onto that limb of faith. Look beyond the crowd to Christ and receive his free gift of salvation. Welcome him home. I want you to notice this though. Who initiates this transaction? Who initiates this relationship between Jesus and Zacchaeus? It's Jesus. Jesus seeks us. Jesus pursues us. He walks right up to Zacchaeus and he invites himself in. And I believe this morning that he's doing the exact same thing to some of you that are here. He's calling you by name. He's calling you by name and he's inviting himself into your life. Would you receive him? Today could be the best day of your life. He's here. Jesus is here right now and he wants you to know that he loves you, that he can save you that he has a place for his spirit within you. 
He wants to forgive you, to redeem you, to give you a purpose. Will today be the day that salvation in Christ comes to your home? That he comes in and takes up residence with you. If you want that, if you want Jesus today, if you want him right now, simply in your heart say, yes, Lord, I believe. Believe in him. Receive salvation today. And maybe tell someone that great news of what has just transpired. Because it is great news. Jesus is so good. And in these last few verses, we're going to see the response of of Zacchaeus to this initiation of relationship that Jesus brings to him. And and we can see that he is not trying to to do anything to earn his salvation, but rather he is responding overjoyed at what Jesus has done for him. It says in verse eight, and Zacchaeus stood and said to him, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Listen, when Jesus says that salvation has come to this house, it's because he's come. You wanna know what salvation is? Salvation is Jesus's grace plus nothing. No religion, religion no obligation, nothing that we do to earn our salvation. It is simply what he has already done. Jesus loves you. And his death on the cross was the payment, all that was ever required for your sin and for your salvation. There is nothing else for you to do. Nothing to do but to receive that grace. But but here's the thing. When you taste the grace of God, when you taste what he has done, you can't help but respond. I want you to notice here the order of grace. It's not this, it's not cleaning yourself up, pay your penance, join a small group, start tithing, and then I'll come home with you. Then I'll, make up, uh, I'll take up residence with you. No, it's, it's I'm coming home with you today. In all your mess, in all your brokenness, I'm calling you by name and I am coming home with you. And, and the, the action that we see out of Zacchaeus after this, this is a response to grace. This is a picture of the chains falling off. Think of Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning, the way he's, he's running around blessing everyone with Merry Christmases and, and little gifts and, and bringing the goose or turkey or whatever it was, I don't remember. But we see him rejoicing in this freedom that he has, this salvation from his chains. And I want you to see the response now to salvation through Zacchaeus. What is the response? It's repentance, it's restoration, and it is rejoicing. Zacchaeus turns his life direction from his greed and his earthly pursuits. He casts off his old chains and he jumps down quickly to follow Jesus. What kind of chains do you need to cast off this morning? What do you need to leave at the cross? Today, whether you've been a Christian for moments or for years is a chance yet again to take hold of your new identity in Christ that you've been set free. It is for freedom that he has set you free. Don't submit again to that yoke. Leave it, leave it at the cross. Immediately Zacchaeus gets down and, and, he, and he repents. He immediately determines to pay back everything he's unjustly gained. The law says he owes 120% to those he's defrauded, but he's so radically touched by Jesus that, that he determines to give back 400%, half of his wealth to the poor and the oppressed. This is the natural response to the grace that we've received as we understand it. And it's a good day for Jericho when someone comes to a genuine saving faith in him. Listen, generosity doesn't earn grace. Grace is free. But without a doubt, the way we, we use what we've been given in life will be in response to and in proportion to how much we understand the grace of God toward us. 
It flows out of understanding his deep love toward us. Zacchaeus is forever changed. And in his joy, he wants to restore everything that he's taken to restore in response to the grace that he can never repay. He's rejoicing, lastly, rejoicing, overjoyed that Jesus would name him, call him, offer him salvation, redeem him. And notice the way he speaks to Jesus. He says, behold, Lord. He's like a kid showing off for his parents. Look at me. Dad, watch me. I'm giving it all away. I'm giving it all away. And you can just see the the smile on Jesus's face. Like Ebenezer Scrooge waking to a new life on Christmas morning, the chains falling off. Zacchaeus, he's been born again. And in this new life, he's found joys. He's been brought into the family of God. He, he will, in the coming weeks, come to know of Jesus's death and then his resurrection. And what church history records for us is that Zacchaeus continued faithfully in this life, even becoming the bishop or the overseeing pastor of the church in Caesarea. This guy goes all in for the sake of Christ. One encounter with Jesus changed everything. And it can for you too. Do you know you need him? Do you know you need him this morning? Have you come to the point in your life in which you recognize that you you can't measure up, that that all your self-medicating and white knuckling aren't enough? Do you recognize that you need Jesus? The gospel demonstrates that we are far more broken than we could possibly imagine. And yet, far more love, loved than we could ever dare believe infinitely loved. And through his finished work on the cross, he's forgiven us, not just what we've done, but who we are apart from him. He's forgiven who we are by nature and choice. He's given us limitless grace. He's brought joy to the world. He loves you. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that he would willingly suffer for you, die for you, and offer you new life. If you know Christ, I'd encourage you to continually remind yourself of the truth of the gospel, that realization of his grace towards you, and to live a life in response to grace, a radical repentance, a restorative generosity, rejoicing. But if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never crossed that line of belief to to step into this, this new life, this new birth, why not today? Why not today? What if today was the best day of your life? because today you found salvation. What if today was the day that you stepped out on a limb, looked beyond the crowd and welcomed Jesus home? It's simple, it's simple. You simply acknowledge belief in him. This is what Christmas is all about. The King of Kings left his throne on high. He took on the vulnerability of a newborn child in order to love us, to die for us and to raise us to new life with him. And so I'm gonna pray right now and we're going to pray. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus, perhaps today would be the day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that that does not yet acknowledge their need of you, that today would be the day they see. Not just their need, but your goodness and grace, your love available, your open arms, your invitation. If there's anyone here this morning that that if you desire to receive salvation, I I just invite you to to pray along with me silently, to pray along with this prayer. It's not a prayer that saves you, but what we acknowledge through this prayer is what saves us. It is what he has done. So pray with me. Oh God, I've sinned against you and you alone. I'm willing to turn. And today I receive you as savior. I receive your mercy, the forgiveness of my sins. I confess you, Jesus Christ as Lord.
and I receive with gratitude the redemption that you've bought for me through the cross. And Lord, in this new life, I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.